It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Friday, June 12, 2020. On today's episode, music librarian Farah Muhammad takes us on a musical excursion as she talks about the great outdoors. Here are a few tunes that might be helpful in conjuring lovely images of the great outdoors. Stephen Tomlinson is here with more TV and movie recommendations. And speaking of bombshells, but one of a very different kind is the 2019 movie entitled Bombshell, a timely, absorbing drama with a strong ensemble cast that is now streaming on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. It's about the downfall of the real-life Fox News chairman, Roger Ailes. And on Book Talking with Danielle Belanger and Jennifer Eisman, you'll hear about four books that they've read recently. This book is completely outside of my normal reading genre. First of all, it's a mystery, which I'm usually not interested in, and one that is a bit off the wall and filled with characters who are larger than life. On this date in history, in 1964, Nelson Mandela was sentenced to life in prison in South Africa. Exactly 30 years later, Mandela would become president of South Africa. On June 12, 1987, in one of his most famous Cold War speeches, President Ronald Reagan challenged the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, to tear down the Berlin Wall. Here is part of President Reagan's speech that day in Berlin. And now, now the Soviets themselves may in a limited way be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Certain foreign news broadcasts are no longer being jammed. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state? Or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West or to strengthen the Soviet system without changing it? We welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together that the advance of human liberty the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace there is one sign the soviets can make that would be unmistakable that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace general secretary gorbachev if you seek peace if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That was President Ronald Reagan in 1987. And now, here's music librarian Farah Mohammed. Hello there, and welcome to A Musical Moment. My name is Farah Mohammed, 
and today we celebrate the great outdoors. We are well into summer now, and the weather is glorious, which usually means vacation time. Traveling abroad to new and exotic locales or closer to home, whether it be visiting new cities, going to the beach or to the lake, or hiking up mountain trails, for most of us, this time usually marks a planned getaway, even if it's just for a few days. So although we cannot travel anywhere just yet, we can still imagine places we'd like to visit, both far and near. So here's hoping that sooner or later, we will all be tourists again soon. But until then, here are a few tunes that might be helpful in conjuring lovely images of the great outdoors. The sultry voice of Girl Next Door, Doris Day, starts things off for us. This song was composed in 1926 as a last-minute addition to the Rodgers and Hart musical, Betsy. Although the show ran for only 39 performances, Blue Skies was an instant success, with the audience on opening night demanding 24 encores of the piece, sung by the star of the show, Belle Baker. Smiling at me Nothing but blue skies Do I see Blue birds Singing a song Nothing but blue birds All day long Never saw the sun Shining bright Never saw things Going so right Noticing the days Hurry by when you're in love, my, how they fly Blue days, all of them gone Nothing but blue skies from now on Nothing but blue skies do I see Noticing the days hurry by When you love my How they fly Blue days All of them gone Nothing but blue skies From now Sometimes though We're not so lucky And we come across bad weather On a day that was meant for fun but we don't despair, as rain clouds usually disappear after a while. Listen to the intensity of Edie Gourmet's voice as she belts out this 1933 torch song, Stormy Weather, written by Harold Arland and Ted Kohler. The weather here is a metaphor for the feelings of the singer. Stormy weather, since my man and I ain't together, keeps raining all the time.
a song that conjures up the great outdoors, this time images of swaying palm trees in the slight breeze with white sands and aquamarine waters. The sweet and lilting sounds of the steel pan drum brings to mind only one thing, the Caribbean. This instrumental number is called Chukuni, a 19th century Haitian song composed by Michel Moliard Monton with lyrics from a poem by Oswald Durand. It was rewritten with English lyrics in the 20th century as Yellowbird. Musician Arthur Lyman made the song a hit in 1961.
deep blue sea, we go to the highest mountain peaks, whether we hike on mountain trails or even experience by train the utterly awe-inspiring majesty of mountain chains. This, most certainly, is one of the best ways of experiencing the great outdoors. Which brings to mind this next number, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Written by husband and wife songwriting team Nicholas Ashford and Valerie Simpson, the song was made famous in 1967 by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. This carefree, danceable and romantic love song became a hit, peaking at number 19 on the Billboard pop charts and went to number three on the R&B charts. It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999 and is regarded today as one of the most important records ever released by Motown. Still on the mountaintops, here's a rather cute and upbeat number composed by Lou Brown in 1926. I'd climb the highest mountain if I knew I'd find you, sung by Bing Crosby. A most lovely sentiment indeed. You know I'd climb the highest mountain if I knew that when I climbed that mountain I'd find you I'd swim 
the deepest river If I knew that when I swam that river I'd find you Without you, dear, my life means nothing to me No matter where you are, that's where I want to be I pray to get to heaven Cause I know that if I got to heaven I'd find you you dear my life means nothing to me no matter where you are that's where I want to be I'd give my greatest treasure if I knew by giving up that treasure I'd find you The great outdoors, it seems, can be enjoyed no matter the time of day. And although we do much activity in the day, there are plenty of things to do in the evening as well. I'm thinking of singing songs and storytelling around a campfire. Or how about those mammoth outdoor music festivals that go on all through the night? Day or night, it doesn't matter as long as you're enjoying the great outdoors. Which brings to mind this classic Cole Porter song, here are the sweet sounds of Miss Ella Fitzgerald singing Night and Day. Like the beat, beat, beat of the tom-tom When the jungle shadows fall Like the tick-tick-tock of the stately clock As it stands against the wall like the drip, drip, drip of the raindrops When the summer shower is through So a voice within me keeps repeating You, 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 night and day In 
Hearing traffic's boom In the silence of my lonely room I think of you Torment won't be through Till you let me spend my life Making love to you day and night Night and day Night and day Under the height of me There's an old Santa hungry yearning Burning inside you've enjoyed our musical travels today, enjoying the great outdoors in good weather or bad, from the mountaintops to the tropics, day or night. It's good to get out and experience a little Mother Nature. And although it's disappointing that we cannot go far right now, there is still much to explore, even in our own neck of the woods. So until next time, happy listenings. Bye for now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. And for the next 20 minutes or more, I'll be talking about some recent movies and television and providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch it. I'll be discussing a day of Montgomery Cliff movies coming up on Turner Classic Movies, a new episode of American Masters about the life and career of actress and vaudevillian Mae West. I'll be looking briefly at the 2019 movies, 1917, Bombshell, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, as well as the 2019 HBO miniseries, Chernobyl. But first, a new movie about the life of actress Jean Seberg. In Seberg, now streaming on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube, Kristen Stewart gives a truly body-and-soul performance as a Hollywood celebrity pushed beyond her limit. It's such a stellar performance that I think Stewart really redeems this well-meaning, if uneven biographical drama, which earns points for trying to do the real-life Seberg a measure of justice that she definitely did not receive in her own time. In playing her, Stewart embodies the question at the core of the film. How does a beautiful, talented college girl from a small town in Iowa who was plucked from obscurity in 1957 to play Joan of Arc in a major Hollywood movie end up a probable suicide in Paris 22 years later at just the age of 40? It wasn't a failed love affair or the Hollywood studio system that discovered, exploited, and discarded her that killed Seabird. No, it was politics. 
at least according to this impassioned, if somewhat overwrought film, which is determined to detail how and why she died. But all credit really must go to Stewart for convincingly portraying Seberg as a tough, thoughtful, flesh-and-blood woman who was persecuted by an FBI headed by J. Edgar Hoover that was seemingly determined to destroy her for her political beliefs. By 1968, when this film really picks up and commits to her story, Seberg has moved past the trauma of her early experience on the movie of St. Joan. Her son Galli director Otto Preminger cast her again in 1958's adaptation of François Sagan's Bonjour Tristesse, and though her performance in that film remains a career highlight, it didn't do especially well at the box office. It really was only in 1960 when French filmmaker and Preminger acolyte Jean-Luc Godard gave her the role of a young American woman in Paris for his Nouvelle Vague classic A Bout de Souffle, otherwise known as Breathless, that Seberg, with her pixie-cut, black pants, and sexy air of inscrutability, won respect, both as an actress and as a 1960s fashion icon. Paris also became her home, the place where she settled with her second husband, novelist Roman Gary, played in the movie by Ivan Etal, and also her young son. The film mostly brushes past these details, saving its focus for Seberg's relationship with a radical Black Panther activist played by Anthony Mackie, whom she meets in Los Angeles. Her very public financial contributions to civil rights causes, frequent practice of flourishing the Black Power salute, and sexual affair with Mackie's character all become things that enrage both conservative Hollywood and the FBI. Hoover's agents then make up a storm of bad publicity, which really amounts to a kind of public shaming of Seaberg, while subjecting her to aggressive, widespread surveillance at the same time. Even worse, when she later becomes pregnant by another man, the FBI knowingly disseminates false information about the baby, who has died two days after her birth, and the result on Seaberg's mental state is not a pretty one. What we see in this film, shot with a very keen eye for period details, is nothing less than the systematic destruction of an innocent human being because of her very public support of often controversial social causes. And it's here that Kristen Stewart builds her performance to a level of great feeling, I think, and in doing so becomes by far the most compelling aspect of Seaberg the movie. That's the new movie Seaberg, now streaming on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. You know, with perhaps just a little hyperbole, the great Italian film star Marcello Mastroianni once said of Montgomery Cliff that he was, and I quote, the true originator of the rebellious 20th century acting antihero. Not Marlon Brando, not James Dean, but Montgomery Cliff the restrained performer with the inner tension and those ancient melancholy eyes, his presence so unobtrusively strong that it lingers in the imagination long after the film has ended. End quote. Visually, Montgomery Clift had that most earnest of faces, with big pleading eyes, a well-defined jawline, and the sort of immaculate side part to his hair that you just don't see anymore. He only made 17 movies in his relatively brief career, 
from 1948 to 1966, when he died at the age of 45. But each one is marked by his exceptional talent, vulnerability, and intensity. And it has to be said, too, by his exceptional good looks. Indeed, I don't think there was ever a more beautiful leading man in the entire history of Hollywood. You might even say that his talent was as dazzling as his beauty. Montgomery Cliff played the desperate, the drunken, and the deceived, and the trajectory of his career was every bit as tragic as that of Gene Seberg or Judy Garland, whom I talked about last week, or any of his own films for that matter, creating an aesthetic of suffering that has got it the way we think about him even today. This Monday, June 15th, Turner Classic Movies is playing several of his movies, beginning at 6.30 a.m. with The Search, made in 1948, one of the first Hollywood films to address the Holocaust, however indirectly, and in which Cliff plays an American soldier who helps a nine-year-old Czech boy find his mother in post-war Europe. The Search is followed by the little scene The Big Lift from 1950, another post-war drama, and then by Alfred Hitchcock's I Confess from 1952, in which he plays a conscience-stricken priest, and which was, of course, shot in Quebec City, and very beautifully so, I might add. Then comes From Here to Eternity from 1953, also directed by Fred Zinnemann, who had done the search just three years earlier, but here with Cliff as a rebellious boxer in the army just prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and for which he earned an Oscar nomination as Best Actor. From Here to Eternity is followed by Indiscretion of an American Wife, also from 1953, and then by Raintree County from 1957, a very interesting romantic drama set during the American Civil War. And it was during the making of Raintree County that Cliff had an extremely serious car accident after leaving a party hosted by his very good friend, Elizabeth Taylor, who also stars in the movie with him, and which permanently damaged his face and left him in chronic pain, accelerating his alcohol and drug dependencies, and seriously harming his self-esteem. Nevertheless, in his movies, in these movies, you can see the dark, sultry, and charismatic acting style that had once set Hollywood completely aflame. That's a program of six Montgomery Cliff movies playing on Turner Classic Movies beginning at 6.30 a.m. on Monday, June 15th. Also this week on TV, on PBS... On Tuesday, June 16th, at 8 p.m., is a new 90-minute episode of American Masters about the life and career of performer Mae West. No tragedy here. It's entitled Mae West, Dirty Blonde. West, whose time in the spotlight spanned about eight decades, once said of herself that she, and I quote, climbed the ladder of success wrong by wrong, end quote. Now, this is a brand new documentary, which I haven't seen yet, but given that it is American Masters, I'm sure it will be very well done, and I very much anticipate seeing it. Mae West was, of course, way ahead of her time. She was a full-time actress at age seven, a vaudevillian at age 14, a dancing sensation at 25, a Broadway playwright at 33, a silver screen ingenue at 40 a Vegas nightclub act at age 62, and a recording artist at 73, not to mention being something of a camp icon 
well into her, her, her 80s. In fact, I think it's fair to say that whatever she lent her hand to, she was a complete success at. Mae West possessed creative and economic powers really unheard of for a female entertainer in the 1930s, and still, of course, somewhat rare today. Though she was a comedian, West grappled with some of the more complex social issues of her time, including race, class, and most of all, sexuality, and imbued even her most salacious plot lines and material with commentary about gender conformity, societal restrictions, and what she perceived as moral hypocrisy. That's the new documentary entitled May West, Dirty Blonde, debuting this week on PBS's American Masters on Tuesday, June 16th at 8 p.m. And oh yes, I see that it's executive produced by Bette Midler, who was, of course, very much influenced by May West. And speaking of bombshells, but one of a very different kind, is the 2019 movie entitled Bombshell, a timely, absorbing drama with a strong ensemble cast that is now streaming on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. It's about the downfall of the real-life Fox News chairman Roger Ailes, following multiple charges of sexual assault around the time of the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Charlize Theron and Nicole Kidman portray former Fox figures Megyn Kelly and Gretchen Carlson, respectively, who rise and fall in the hierarchy of the network based on the whims of its unscrupulous predatory leader, Isles, played by John Lithgow. With the addition of a fictional composite character played by Margot Robbie, Bombshell vividly depicts the world of habitual debasement and sexual harassment that these women worked in, regardless of their stature in the cable news realm. And as such, the movie really belongs to these three actresses. It's their fierce, empathetic, and finely shaded performances that transcend the film's somewhat drab visual style and drier episodic moments. Though all three actresses share little screen time together, except for a scene set during a tense elevator ride. Their stories are interconnected and are eerily similar as more women step forward through the course of the film to help in the collective cause. The result is very much an explosive piece of entertainment that also means to make a difference. That's Bombshell, now streaming on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Another well-regarded movie from last year is 1917. Directed by Sam Mendes and dedicated to his own grandfather, who had served in Belgium's Flanders region, 1917 is a visceral World War I movie that is both technically masterful in being designed to look like one continuous tracking shot and emotionally devastating. It's probably the best film of Mendes' career, and that includes his Oscar-winning debut, American Beauty. The story, as such, is about two British privates who are instructed by their commanding officer, played by Colin Firth, to deliver a message to stop troops further afield from falling into an ambush. As the camera follows these two, Mendez and cinematographer Roger Deakins somehow remarkably keep the action flowing without a single cut. Or at least, it seems that way. Introducing some fine, recognizable actors along the way, like Mark Strong, Andrew Scott, and Benedict Cumberbatch, the focus is nevertheless largely on the two leads played by lesser-known Dean Charles Chapman and George McKay. 
Now, perhaps no film can truly capture the enormity of war, of course, which in this case left around 17 million people dead with generations to grieve afterwards. And so Mendez wisely takes, I think, the opposite approach in personalizing the experience through these two young British soldiers sent on a harrowing, high-stakes, night-long mission. And in doing so, really creates a film that is at once tense, exhilarating, and profoundly moving. That's the movie 1917, now streaming on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Another period piece of a kind is Céline Sciamma's César Best French Film of the Year winning Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a.k.a. Portrait de la Jeune Fille en Feu, which also won Best Screenplay at Cannes last year. This tale of simmering passions in 18th century France probably would have been a worthy recipient of that festival's top prize, too, and is certainly confirmation of what a great talent Siama is, one of the finest filmmakers of her generation. Just her fourth film so far in the 12 years that she's been making movies, this is a huge step up in ambition and artfulness. It also reunites her with Adele Hanel, who starred in her 2007 debut, Water Lilies. Here, Hanel plays Heloise, the daughter of a no-nonsense French countess, who has, after the death of her sister, betrothed Heloise to a Melanese gentleman that she's never met. And to cement this arranged marriage, her mother recruits a painter, Mariana, played by Noemi Merlon, to capture Heloise's image to be sent to her suitor in Milan. However, as Heloise has already refused to sit for one artist, driving them to distraction, the Countess instructs Mariana to pose as a companion and make drawings of her daughter in secret. But as these two women open up to each other, romantic feelings begin to blossom, and a certain sexual tension fills the screen. Shot by cinematographer Claire Mathon, the film is exquisitely rendered as if a canvas has come to life, none more so than in the scene that inspires the title, as Heloise's dress accidentally catches a light on a night of revelry. With the rugged Brittany coastline providing the backdrop, Siyama and her cinematographer also capture something brooding and barbaric in the rough seas and windswept beaches. A kind of French equivalent of the Yorkshire moors in Wuthering Heights, you might say. Like the brushwork of artist Helen de Mer, who painted all the pictures seen in the film, the landscape positively exudes emotion. This is definitely a film about love and desire, set against the strict confines of 18th century French society. But it's not a niche film. Anyone who has ever felt a burning passion for any other person will relate to and fall for this pleasurable and highly thrilling work. That's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a.k.a. Portrait de la, de la Jeune Fille en Feu, now streaming on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Okay, let's wrap up today with a mention of the Emmy Award-winning HBO miniseries Chernobyl, about events surrounding the 1986 explosion at the Chernobyl nuclear energy plant in the former Soviet Union, one of the world's worst man-made disasters, and available to watch on Crave, either as an app or through a series of cable, cable TV channels from both Videotron and Bell. Most people are aware of Chernobyl at least in terms of it being a nuclear power plant disaster. However, the sheer extent of that disaster may still come as something of a shock, 
with his five-part miniseries exploring in depth the immediate after-effects and highlighting how sheer politically charged mass denial helped perpetuate the fallout rather than contain it. Expertly scripted, perfectly acted, and extremely tense, Chernobyl may not be a documentary, but it also does not appear to dramatize the events all that much, as they are, of course, dramatic enough. The series kicks off almost immediately with the discovery that something very wrong has gone on at the Chernobyl plant during some routine tests, although the incredibly arrogant chief engineer working there refuses to acknowledge even the possibility that it could have involved a ruptured core. As a result, anybody disagreeing with his political stance is faced with very strong and potentially lethal opposition, with measures put into place to prevent panic affecting the wider population through some rather obvious misinformation. A few loyal, incredibly heroic workers pay the immediate price of this, while honest scientists desperately try to get the true extent of the fallout across, at whatever the cost. Through the course of the first couple of episodes, a number of familiar actors appear, including Jared Harris, Stellan Skarsgård, and Emily Watson, all of whom come together to form the backbone of the series, although a dozen other key players all come into focus at various points. Now, it may seem unlikely, but this is easily one of the best miniseries that I've seen in a long time. Very well structured and ridiculously tense. And I guarantee that the second episode's closing shot alone will likely leaving you feeling somewhat haunted until the beginning of the third one. Say no more. Chernobyl treads a perfect line between a real-life convoluted political and humanitarian situation and palpably tense horror drama yet still feels often very documentary-like in style. The real-life event may have been a monumental catastrophe, but it was clearly made so much worse by what happened immediately afterwards, and this excellent HBO miniseries doesn't hold back in exploring every tragic aspect of that. Highly recommend it. That's Chernobyl, available to watch on Crave, either as an app or through a series of cable TV channels from both Videotron and Bell. It's also available to reserve as a set of DVDs from the library, as are many Montgomery Cliff movies, including From Here to Eternity and I Confess, as well as the recent documentary about the actor entitled Making Montgomery Cliff. The recent movies 1917, Bombshell, and Portrait of the Lady on Fire are also available to reserve as DVDs from the library. Anyway, that's all for now, folks. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing, with me, Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I hope you've enjoyed this installment and will join me next Friday for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch it. Please remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. Bye-bye for now. Good afternoon, everyone. Today, Jennifer Eisman, Manager of Digital Learning and Discovery, and myself, Danielle Bilanchi, Manager of Library Programs and User Experience, will be sharing our thoughts about four must-read coming-of-age stories. Each of these was adapted from a book into a film. You'll get to hear our views on what worked best, what simply didn't, and our reasoning behind why. 
You'll also hear what we each may have changed if given the chance in the film adaptation to best reflect the essence of the book. We'll also let you know what we think of the casting of each of these stories. Stay tuned and enjoy. Jen, first up, you'll be sharing your views on Motherless Brooklyn by Jonathan Letham. My first question for you would be, which one did you like best, the book or the movie? and why. Thanks, Danielle. This book is completely outside of my normal reading genre. First of all, it's a mystery, which I'm usually not interested in, and one that is a bit off the wall and filled with characters who are larger than life. The story opens with Lionel Ezra, who is on a stakeout with his boss, Frank Mina, who is a small-time gangster. Lionel is part of a gang of boys who Frank adopted from a local orphanage, so they are called Mina Men. While on assignment, Frank gets whacked, and it's up to Lionel to solve the crime. The action takes place over two days, so the story moves at a very fast pace, with Lionel running between Manhattan and a Zen Buddhist school that he suspects of involvement in the crime. The story is made interesting by the fact that Lionel has Tourette's syndrome. Tourette's manifests itself by incessant verbal and physical ticking, in Lionel's case, he has uncontrollable urges to blurt out nonsense phrases, like friend of the deceased becomes mend the retreats. And Lionel's own name goes from Lionel Ezrog to unreliable chess scrub. So go figure. And he's yelling profanities like eat me at inopportune times. He also touches surfaces repeatedly, sort of like in this lovingly stroking them type manner. And he repeats things all the time. Like at one point, he throws away a gun, and then he must throw away four things in rapid succession, including his own shoe. So not only are you running along with the story trying to figure out who done it, but at the same time, you're also playing verbal gymnastics trying to figure out what is being said. Unfortunately, I did not enjoy the film nearly as much as the novel. Clocking in at 144 minutes, it did not have the same fast-paced energy as the book. When I first started watching the film, it took me a moment to realize that Edward Norton had completely rewritten Jonathan Lethem's 1999 novel, changing the setting from the 1990s to the 1950s. I found that this seriously affected the integrity of the original storyline of the novel and really took away from it. I understand that, you know, filmmakers take creative license to bring forth an artistic vision or cinematic experience, but this was almost too much for me. It felt as if the movie became less about bringing a novel to the big screen and more about Edward Norton's own personal passion. Thanks for sharing, Jen. Now, how about the reviews? The reviews for the film were quite mixed, with some critics saying audience members will either love or hate this film. In what ways do you think it could have been portrayed better, if any? I think I would have enjoyed this movie more if it was a standalone film and I didn't know it was based upon a book. By changing the setting, it completely destroyed the image I had in my head of the characters. Norton even went as far as to introduce a completely new villain in the shape of an unscrupulous real estate tycoon loosely based on master builder Robert Moses, who actually changed the face of New York City in the mid-20th century. It is noted that Motherless Brooklyn is a decade-plus passion project for Edward Norton. He acquired the rights to the movie in 1998, but didn't finish writing the script until 2012. 
This movie is more about creating a film noir experience than Edward Norton wanted to bring to the large screen than portraying the original story by Jonathan Lethem. It has all the hallmarks of the film noir genre. Voiceover, narration, check. Moody, Edward, Hooper style cinematography, check. A beautiful, mysterious woman, check. An underbelly of corruption our hero can't begin to comprehend, check. And to actually quote an online film review, it seems as if he wanted to create his own Chinatown or LA Confidential and decided to shoehorn the bones of the novel into the genre to satisfy his itch. So personally, I would have much preferred that Edward Norton created his own film instead of taking a novel and twisting it around to suit his, to suit his own purposes. Thank you, Jen. The stories we're discussing today all have something to do with coming of age. In regards to Motherless Brooklyn, I've read the following statement. This novel signals the coming of age of a major American writer. Would you agree with this statement? And please tell us more about the author and why this story was so important for his generation. Yes, I can see the author coming into his own with the publication of this book. It did, after all, win the National Book Critics Circle Award in 1999, and it was named Book of the Year by Esquire for that very same year. It has all of the quote-unquote lethem touches that have thrilled critics in the past. Crackling dialogue, sly humor, and dizzling plot twists. I believe lethem is an important author because he has been labeled as a genre bender by critics who have cited the variety of genres he has written, which include hard-boiled detective fiction, science fiction, and stuff that is autobiographical in nature. Many authors just prefer to write in one genre and don't like to mix it up. Generally speaking, Motherless Brooklyn falls into the genre that we like to call hard-boiled or detective novel. However, solving the crime in this book is completely beside the point. If you're a mystery maven, this really may bother you. Instead, under the guise of a detective novel, Lethem has written a more piercing tale of investigation about the mysteries of consciousness, the dualism Lionel Ezrog alludes to when he talks about his quote-unquote Tourette's brain as if it were an entity apart from him. Thanks so much for elaborating, Jen. I feel as though I have a better sense for this story and its importance now. So let's switch gears and discuss the film adaptation. Do you think Edward Norton was the right choice in director and lead actor for the film adaptation, or would he have chosen someone else? If so, who? And how would the change of casting alter the story? In 1999, when Norton set out to direct and star in this movie, he was 39 years old. Today, he's 50. Just let that sink in for a second. Edward Norton playing the part of Lionel on screen was not the image I had in mind when I read the novel originally. I found him too old to be playing this part and I had trouble reconciling what I was watching on screen versus the storyline of the novel. It just didn't seem to jive anymore. It doesn't seem to make sense for a 50 year old man to be drawn into a small time mobster circle like he's being taken under his wing. This is something that you would expect to see happening between a younger man or adolescent looking for sort of like an older mentor or this mobster figure who has this sort of wow, wow factor that he's attracted to. I think maybe I would have gone with someone like maybe a Shia LaBeouf and thinking of his first role in Transformers, especially the first film where he seemed to have like a lot of nervous energy. That's the type of energy that I would have expected Lionel's character to bring to, to the screen. Thank you, Jen. Definitely a good choice with Shia LaBeouf. 
Lastly, can you please tell our listeners why you recommend the book Motherless Brooklyn and if they should watch the film as well or just skip it? I actually would recommend both, but I would highly suggest reading the novel first as it is a completely different experience than the movie. The movie takes a film noir approach to Jonathan Lethem's novel and it should be really viewed through that lens. So now it's Danielle's turn to talk about Room by Emma Donahue. Please tell us about the premises of this book and how it came to be written. Okay, Jen, no problem. The book Room by Emma Donahue was written in 2010 by Irish-Canadian author Emma Donahue. The story is told from the perspective of a five-year-old boy, Jack, who is being held captive in a small room along with his mother. Donahue conceived the story after hearing about five-year-old Felix in the Fritzel case and a 2008 court case in which a Pennsylvania woman held her children captive for eight years in a small room similar to the one in the novel. On his fifth birthday, Jack wakes up next to Ma inside room, the 11 by 11 shed that Jack has called home all his life. As Jack and Ma celebrate his birthday by reminiscing about the day of his birth, baking a cake, playing games, and watching TV, it becomes clear that Jack and Ma are captives of a man they know only as Old Nick. Jack is Old Nick's biological son, and Ma, who has been locked up in room for seven years since she was abducted at 19, is barely keeping herself and Jack alive and sane. Ma is just 26, but already suffers from a bad wrist as well as rotting teeth and a barely controlled addiction to killers, which results in her having gone days where she's unable to get out of bed. Many of the things Jack and Ma do together are things that Jack perceives as games, but actually activities like orchestra, which is banging on objects and walls, scream, screaming as loud as they can at the skylight, and flicking the lamp on and off again are designed to draw attention to the isolated hovel Ma and Jack are forbidden from ever leaving. It also becomes evident that Jack believes no world exists outside of room. Ma has told him that beyond room, there's only outer space and that the things they see on TV are fake things happening on other planets. Though Jack has a limited understanding of reality, he has a tremendous vocabulary, a clear moral center, and is beginning to want more out of life, such as toys and animal friends. Old Nick comes to room several nights a week to bring food and to rape Ma. Every time he enters, by way of a heavy door sealed by an electronic keypad, Ma hides Jack away in wardrobe so that Old Nick can't see him and so that he can't see old Nick. Thanks, Danielle. Much has been said about Emma Donahue's novel, Room, in particular, the unique writing style. Please tell us about it and what you liked or disliked about it. Great question, Jen, thank you. I have to admit, I picked up this novel a few years ago after hearing a few whispers of it being great and a nail-biting experience. I hadn't pressed for more details at the time because I want to go into the novel with fresh eyes. I was immediately surprised at the writing style because it was unlike anything I'd ever read. It was written from the perspective of a five-year-old child, despite, I'm sorry, the fact that it addresses very mature themes and is meant for an adult audience. 
I think the fact the author chose to interpret the story in this way will soften it for some readers and have a broader audience base. I remember when the book was adapted into a film and I was very curious to see if it would be as compelling. At that time, my sister and others immediately said to me, oh, no, 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 I don't want to see that movie because of its subject matter. I didn't feel as though readers were as put off as those who may want to watch the film. Danielle, how did Ma, as she's described in the book, compare to Brie Larson's Oscar-winning performance? How much importance do you place on Emma Donahue directly, being directly involved with the movie adaptation of her book? Yes, of course. Uh, thank you, Jen. The character of Ma is extremely devoted to her child, both in the book and in the movie versions. I'm not sure personally if Jack would have survived his upbringing were it not for his mother's constant love and devotion and comforting presence. I feel as though Ma's portrayal in the film is pretty close to what we learn of her in the book. Despite her always trying to put her best self at the forefront while stuck in room for many years for the sake of her child's well-being, she experiences a higher level of confusion and difficulty once they're back in the real world. She has completely lost touch with so many changes, both in technology as well as her relationships. Her parents have divorced and her friends have mostly moved away. The sense of isolation that she had in room is almost worse out in the real in the real world despite the fact that i did say the film is quite faithful to the book i would like to note that there are a few key changes to the movie that make it slightly different from the book so in the film adaptation there's less emphasis on the fact that ma still breastfeeds jack despite the fact that he's five years old we hear about this a lot more in the book this is said to be common in these types of situations, but only alluded to in the film. The film adaptation also has Ma abducted at 17 years old while she still lives with her parents. And in the book, this happens while she's in college at the age of 19. The Great Escape is also treated differently in the film version than in the book. In the book, two in the book, there are two instances, and in the film, they get condensed into one in order for the escape to have a shortened uh, timeline of how to get out of the room. Another change from the book and the film adaptation is the fact that Ma goes to live with her mother before her suicide attempt. In the book, she goes straight from the clinic to independent living with Jack. Perhaps I was thinking maybe this change is attributed to the fact that in the film, she's abducted at a younger age. And the last thing that happened before she was confined in room was that she lived at home with her parents. And the very last important change in the film adaptation from the book version is the number of pregnancies Ma has in room. In the film adaptation, there's only Jack. However, in the book version, Ma had given birth to a stillborn girl a couple of years before Jack's arrival. I feel as though the fact that Emma Donahue adapted her book into a screenplay gives it more authenticity. As I discussed, there are some differences, but I feel as though we as viewers, when we watch the film, can intuitively sense it's the same voice that was used in the book to describe the story. Okay, so now on to you, Jen. Your next book is... The Girl with the Pearl Earring. It's also been adapted into a film. The book is by Tracy Chevalier. 
Can you please set the stage for us on this one and tell us about the main storyline of the book and its coming of age aspect? Sure, Danielle. The inspiration for this book takes itself from a famous painting by the 17th century Dutch master Vermeer. The author Tracy Chevalier traces the intriguing story of a young Protestant peasant girl named Geert and how she came to be the model for this great painting. The story opens in 17th century Holland and Geert has just found out that she must go and work as a maid for the great painter Vermeer because her father has lost his eyesight and can no longer work to provide for his family. So she, is, she now has the burden of helping to support her family by being its principal bread earner. So she's hired to do daily chores, but in particular clean her master's studio, a job which instantly causes jealousy on the part of Catherine, Vermeer's wife, because it brings Geert closer to Vermeer, but it is an area that is forbidden to Catherine for various reasons that become evident as the story progresses. The relationship between Geert and Vermeer causes many problems in the household, but also in society, which at the time forbid two people from different classes from mixing. As a result of modeling for this painting, Geert is forced to make some life-altering decisions. I don't want to tell you all of them because obviously I don't want to spoil the book. But as the reader makes their way through this novel, they start to form a bond with Geert. We begin to sympathize and empathize with this young girl's plight and the way that life can sometimes be cruelly unjust. As she is thrust into an adult world with adult issues, we watch her move from a very adolescent-like presence to one of awareness and womanhood. So in a sense, we're watching her grow up through the, through the pages, if you will. Thank you, Jen. In the book version of The Girl with the Pearl Earring, it's been written that we get a much better sense of the main character's uh, Greet's perspective and how she's feeling than in the film adaptation. Would you agree with this? And are there scenes or characters from the book that don't appear in the film adaptation that you feel should have? And if so, how did those characters or scenes better shape our understanding of Greet? When reading a novel, one has the benefit of reading detailed descriptions of the characters, their thoughts, the settings, and their costumes. This is one of the advantages to print over film. There is no confusion as to what the author is trying to convey. It's all there on the printed page for the reader to take in. The author sort of paints the picture of what Geert is feeling. Unfortunately, this is not the case with film. The audience is dependent on the actor's skill to portray their feelings and emotions. And I think that Scarlett Johansson was a great choice to play Geert. She beautifully captured the essence of Geert from the novel. Uh, with the barest of glances, she manages to portray all of her innocence, confusion, and the sexual tension that's happening below the surface. This is what happens when you have a highly capable and talented actress trying to tell a story on screen with just a few glances and very little dialogue. That being said, though, Geert is a very complex character and is not easy to get a handle on her inner thoughts. This is much more easily done when you read the book. There are moments in the movie that do not do justice to the author's original work. Set within an art historical context, the way events and objects are described in the book are so lush and rich, and rich in detail, and this is completely lost in the movie. Other than the fact that you see beautiful colors on screen, the viewer is not made to drink them in the same way that they do when they're reading the author's word on the page. For example, there's a dinner scene in the movie that comes across as cluttered and awkward, whereas in the book, this scene is quite important because the author goes to great lengths to describe what is going on, all the underlining tensions, 
who is looking at who, who's trying to avoid whom, and what they are saying with their eyes. This makes for a very interesting uh, dynamic that doesn't seem to be caught in the same way as it was in the movie. In the film version of The Girl with the Pearl Earring, the actress Scarlett Johansson bears an uncanny resemblance to the woman in the famous painting by Vermeer. The film adaptation is visually stunning. Do you think this added or distracted from the storyline? And in your opinion, was too much weighted on the look of the film versus the actual plot? Well, let's just take a minute here and set the scene. Johannes Vermeer is a 17th century Dutch master painter who has dedicated his life to developing his craft. Most of his later paintings, the ones for which he's most famous, depict scenes of daily life in interior settings. These works are remarkable for their purity of light and form, qualities that convey a serene, timeless sense of dignity. Created by Vermeer in 1665 during the Baroque period, The Girl with the Pearl Earring, otherwise known as the Mona Lisa of the North, is one of the most famous and mysterious marvels of the art world. It hauntingly engages the viewer with an enchanced type of realism, showcasing an electrifying gaze of a young girl adorned with a blue and gold turban. So given this little art history lesson I gave you, of course the film is going to be beautiful to look at. It had to pay homage to the talents of Vermeer as a painter. Everything about the art direction, the cinematography, the set, costume design made the film look incredible. It's not exactly surprising that a book about art would translate well to film, but still sometimes the movie doesn't look as good on the screen as it does in your mind while you're reading it. That is definitely not the case with The Girl with the Pearl Earring. It really was a gorgeous movie to watch. It is a, in a sense, the book is a commentary on artistic imperatives, the creative process, and the way we look at things. And of course, money, power, and sex. The movie superbly captures the shadows and lights of Vermeer's Holland. And Johannes' face is complex and haunting as the portrait of the anonymous girl she portrays. But it can be argued that the movie is so visually stunning that images on screen sometimes overpower some of the author's original ideas from the book. Now we are going to turn our attention back to Danielle with her book, The Glass Castle. The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls is a memoir. Please tell us more about this coming-of-age story and why it appealed to you. Okay, no problem, Jen. Yes, as you stated, The Glass Castle is a 2005 memoir by Jeanette Walls. The book recounts the unconventional, poverty-stricken upbringing Jeanette and her siblings had at the hands of her deeply dysfunctional parents. The title refers to her father's long-held intention of building his dream house, a glass castle. In The Glass Castle, Jeanette Walls describes her life in clear, meticulous, extremely readable prose. Her tough childhood makes some others' claims of survival seem self-indulgent. Walls' writing portrays the difficult circumstances of her family without a trace of self-pity. Despite the inability of her parents to provide a stable home, Jeanette's love for her entire family is unmistakable. In the opening chapter, Walls describes seeing her mother on the streets of New York City through the window of a taxi, just as she is wondering whether she's overdressed for a party, she glimpses her mother rooting through trash barrels in the East Village. 
Not wanting to risk being seen with her, Jeanette orders a taxi driver to take her back home to her Park Avenue address while her mother goes about her life on the streets like so many homeless New Yorkers. From this scene, Jeanette takes the reader back to her earliest memory. She is three years old as she stands on a chair at the stove boiling hot dogs in a pot. Her dress catches fire. The reader cannot help but be struck by the inappropriateness of a child this young preparing her own meals. During the time Jeanette is hospitalized for her burns, she enjoys her stay within quiet, snug walls, experiencing regular meals for the first time and discovering such marvels as chewing gum. Without giving away too much about the book, what appealed to me the most in this story was the fact that the main character, Jeanette, overcomes adversity in order to achieve great success in her own career and personal life, but is also haunted by her past. I found the way it was written to be very compelling and powerful and could identify with her need to get away and start over fresh and live very differently as an adult than she did as a child. I also appreciated the fact that there were a lot of feelings and resentments that still shook her and shaped her that she couldn't really quite dissociate from, disassociate from, sorry. I felt this aspect of the memoir was very realistic. She is confronted by the reality of the completely different choices she and her parents have made in living their lives and feels uncomfortable by the fact that her parents do not want her charity or help to live in a way she views as better and more stable. They feel they're living the way they intended and don't care if she'd rather they conform to regular societal norms. They value their freedom above all else. Next, Danielle, let's take a look at the book versus the film adaptation. Tell us what you liked and disliked about the approach the movie took in retelling the story. First, I would say that I was impressed with the fact that the film adaptation featured an all-star cast, Brie Larson as Jeanette, Woody Harrelson as her dad, and Naomi Watts as her mom. I was, uh, I thought, oh, this is going to be a great movie. I thought the film's casting was well-chosen, decisions that were made, I would have assumed, showed tremendous promise. However, for some reason, I can't quite pinpoint, the movie just didn't quite work out as well as I would have hoped. I'm not sure exactly why. I know the intentions were very good and I feel as though the impact just didn't come anywhere close to that of the books. The Glass Castle at the time of my reading was a book I was recommending to everyone. The film, not once. I guess I didn't feel as though the tone and severity of what Jeanette went through was accurately portrayed. I understand in the film version, there's a need to condense and skip over certain parts, but these parts could have been what gave the story more lightness, more balance. The film adaptation has been criticized for not accurately dealing with tonality. And I think that's a great way to put it. However, when I looked into what Jeanette Walls herself thought about the film adaptation, she was very pleased with it. She didn't mind that certain liberties had been taken by the director, and she says they had spoken about the way certain scenes would be introduced or characters would be more developed or less emphasized than in the book. She also states that she had no interest herself in writing the screenplay, describing that that's a task she thought was almost inconceivable to have tackled. 
In her defense, it used to be less common for authors to also take a stab at the screenplays of their own works themselves. However, if you read the book room and watch it, I feel as though you'll understand why, at least in my opinion, these collaborations are the most effective in the sense that they provide not only the most authenticity, but also the highest sense of continuity one may be searching for. To be fair, I rewatched maybe the first half hour of the film, The Glass Castle, last night, and will say I was impressed with the young actress who portrays Jeanette. So I would say you may want to consider it as a watch for The Glass Castle, but definitely you need to read it if you haven't already. I hope you've all enjoyed today's episode and will be back with us next week when our colleagues Lisa Milner and Marait Stevenson tackle another round of books that were adapted into films or television series. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.